0: Back when I was teaching mathematics, when I was a young idealistic teacher, I had two tough guy type students who would sit in the back row, uh, dirty hoodies, slumped in their seats, gruff. They weren't good students and they didn't seem to care. And I used to fret, you know, how do I reach these students? I was very idealistic, but nothing was working. They were rude and dismissive, and I couldn't know for sure, but I suspected they thought of me as nerdy. You know, hi, I'm Andy. Fractions are our friends. So, but nothing seemed to work until one day, when everything changed. I remember I was at the board. I was making a point about perseverance, the kind of dumb inspirational stuff that teachers can really go on about. And I mentioned nunchucks, the uh, martial arts weapon. And I said something like, when I was studying nunchucks in Taiwan, my master said to me, blah, blah, blah. And I happened to notice something out of the corner of my eye. They were sitting in the back, as usual, slumped in their seats. But I noticed at the mention of the word nunchucks, they slowly raised their heads to look at me. They were reappraising me. And it became pretty clear after that that they had come to some kind of new sense of me and my supposed prowess as a... Uh, martial arts powerhouse. So apparently what mattered to them was that I was now revealed as a guy who went to Asia not to study some dumb stuff like Confucianism, but to study fighting. And everything changed after that, it was hilarious. Suddenly they became polite and cooperative. They went from giving me the cold brush off treatment to acting respectfully. It went from, yeah, whatever, to Mr. Ape, could you check my work on this problem? And I, you know, I had to keep from laughing. They became deferential. I'm a social scientist, so I know you can't climb into people's heads and know just what they're thinking, but it seemed pretty clear that I'd gone from wimpy math teacher to powerful fighting machine who can really kick some ass. And it was pretty funny. And I didn't have the heart to tell them that actually I'm no great shakes when it comes to the martial arts. So it was funny, uh, but there was also something interesting about it, something that speaks to Confucianism in some interesting ways. Hi, I'm Andy Abel, and this is the Confucian Podcast. In this episode, we'll explore power. And this is where Confucianism is both very insightful and horribly backward. It's the best and worst of Confucianism all rolled into one. Now, the Confucian conception of power is so down-to-earth, so pragmatic that there's a tendency for people to miss the virtuosity of it, or people can be so offended by some of the assumptions, especially about things like the status of women, that they just can't get past it and see what's of value. Let's start off with a text from the Intellects, and this one records a statement from someone other than Confucius or literally Master Yo, the zi is an honorific, it's usually translated as master. Anyway, Master Yo, who is also called zi ruo, or Yo ruo, was, it is said for a short time, the head of the Confucian school after Confucius died. So here's the first part of his, his, uh, his, intellect, his line. Uh, Yao yu zi yue, li zhi yong he wei gui, xian wang zhi dao, Si wei mei, xiao da yu zhi. You, uh, so Master Yo said as to the use of ritual Li, harmony was prized in the way the Tao of the former kings this was the beauty of it it was used in all things big and small okay so that's pretty straightforward the ancient kings the people who Confucius had figured things out the ancient kings had used ritual and that created harmony and that was the beauty of their system So, pretty straightforward, but there's a second part that is a little tricky. If something isn't working, and if you understand harmony, and there is harmony, but ritual is not used to fix it, it still won't work. So the first part is straightforward. The old king's prized ritual, and that led to harmony, and that was the beauty of the system. But the second part says that if something isn't working, if there's some kind of problem, having harmony won't work on its own. Just going after the harmony, the social harmony, quieting things down, it doesn't fully work unless you have a system of social rituals to undergird it. (laughs) So if something isn't working, if you understand the harmony, there's harmony, but the ritual isn't there, it's not going to work. So basically I read it, paraphrasing somewhat, the old kings used ritual for everything and that created harmony and that was the beauty of their system. But if you just go after that social harmony and you don't pay attention to the underlying rituals, it won't work. Okay, now the Analects are always very terse, so let's tease this out a bit. This one sounds simple, but it's actually very powerful. You know, and uh, so I'm preparing this at this point where uh, this intellect is making an awful lot of sense to me. We've just experienced the murder of George Floyd. Uh, And you know the story. He was killed by a cop who had his knee on Floyd's neck. So, you know, after these things happen, there's always some attempt to create harmony. We usually start by demanding justice, which, if you think about it, is a way of preventing unrest. You keep the people calm, you prevent, prevent riots. But Master YO is right. Preventing unrest isn't enough. It doesn't really cut it. Justice matters. But even after justice is served, after the police officer is arrested, after multi-million dollar payments go out to the family members, even after things quiet down, we sense it isn't really enough. The arrest of Derek Chauvin, the police officer involved, on charges of murder, mind you, which is a big deal for police, did not prevent riots. If we take the law and order approach used by the president, we send in the National Guard and enforce a kind of harmony, or 和, if we enforce it, that's not going to cut it either. If we issue calls for a harmonious society, a xie 和, 和, it's not going to be enough. What we need is an overhaul of the rituals, of interpersonal conduct, and not just some surface-level justice or plastic political correctness. We need real change in how we act toward each other. In Confucian terms, we need to change the li, the ritual. Now, of course, this means changing how police treat people But it's more than just changing police protocols. Obviously, a knee on the neck is not protocol. Anyway, there was a a police chief in Chattanooga who was clear about this. He said on Twitter, if you wear a badge and you don't have an issue with this, turn it in. Turn in your badge. Let's be clear. What's needed is an honoring of people's humanity. And it must be present in police behavior and it must be real not just cheap political correctness by the way confucius is always complaining about pretend benevolence he hated it social scientists have replicated studies again and again that showed different police behavior in different neighborhoods how police interact with two white kids outside a country club is likely to be very different from how they speak to two black kids outside a crack house. And in which case, do you suppose, the behavior will manifest benevolence? Okay, but so what's all this got to do with power? Well, Master Yo and Confucius are speaking to what makes groups effective and therefore powerful. And actually, we see the same issues in our national-level debates today. We, too, are concerned about ritual. It's just that we're not as direct in how we talk about it. We don't have the language used by the Confucian school. We lack a language to take us directly into these issues. I have in mind here things like sporting events. How should we think of, for instance... Colin Kaepernick's having taken a knee during the national anthem as a protest against police brutality. Should sporting events be the place for activism? This is a debate over public rituals and how they function. It's very Confucian, really. and Obviously, uh, Confucianism doesn't give us any simple solutions, but it's a usefully different perspective. At least we can say that just quieting things down without concern for how people behave and how that behavior is patterned, whether it expresses benevolence or not, if you're all harmony and no ritual, in other words, at least we can say that won't work. You'll never get to harmony as an imminent quality that suffuses and diffuses throughout civic life. There's an underlying Confucian premise here. That getting these behaviors right makes a society stronger. And if you get it wrong, eventually everything falls apart. And on one hand, I think pretty obviously societies that cohere effectively are, you know, they're effective or stronger societies. The George Floyd riots certainly felt destabilizing, right? Although if we come together in a new way in the days to come, that could make us stronger. Confucius and his disciples believed they'd found the trick, the set of the tricks, really, the Tao, the way, used by the ancient sage kings. As to the use of rituals, says Master Yeo, harmony was prized. In the way of the former kings, this was the beauty of it. It was used in all things big and small. But you have to get the rituals right. Back to the example of the two students in my classroom, the two students with the hoodies, what struck me about what happened, how they began treating me respectfully after I mentioned nunchucks, and how that allowed me to break through to them and to teach them, what was interesting was realizing how deference made all the difference. Deference, which is a kind of humility, actually. Uh, Deference is a kind of respect that leads people to defer, literally. It's a form of compliance. Deference gives you power. And it turns out to be the most important thing that a teacher needs. Uh, Teachers have many stories like this. When I was getting started as an educator, I remember uh, reading a memoir. It was the story of a teacher who taught uh, in some rough corner of America. I can't remember where. And he wanted to help the people out there. I think it was where he was from. But he couldn't get any respect from his students, none at all. And that meant that he couldn't really teach. He was helpless until something happened uh, that changed everything for him something like what happened with me he was attacked by the toughest of the students and this teacher in defending himself beat the crap out of him Uh, (laughs) you know you can tell this as an old story Uh, if you're a teacher don't try this sort of thing nowadays Uh, but anyway um, beating the kid up put the teacher into a different category then he could be taken seriously and he was able to begin to help his students. He became an effective teacher. But he had to win a fight first to win the respect. It was kind of prison rules in that that school. And the Confucian concern, the Confucian issue, the thing that that I think captures a Confucian imagination in these teacher stories isn't something about the individual teacher, whether he was right or wrong. Uh, It's not about me and how I lucked into impressing two students and could help them out. Or, uh, you know, it's not about the teacher who wrote the memoir. It's not about the individual students. Uh, It's not about what kind of opportunities they faced in life. Uh, Confucian scholars not interested as much in their psychology, I uh, presume. This is not about their heritage, not that kind of thing. No, the, the Confucian attention is drawn to the underlying social system. What's actually going on there? How does it work? Is it giving us outcomes that are productive, which is to say outcomes that best support human flourishing? what has to happen to a free to free up a community from a barbaric system of deference that's based on physical strength on fighting skills on implicit threat of violence and a system that accords no bit of respect for serving in the important role of teacher roles are so important to confucianism and serving uh, is such an important and interesting word in this context, by the way. you know w- what do you have to do to free up a, a community from these things? So um, this is the Confucian perspective, but notice that this takes us to a very touchy point and it's a a problem. and so I want to be critical here and let me let me uh, get at this in a very blunt, crude way to make my point. Suppose we say, East Asians are very high earners in the U.S. They have a high value for education. This relates to their Confucian heritage. So good for them, right? We don't want to stereotype individuals. But it is true that Asians are the highest earning ethnic group. Uh, Sometimes people are surprised to hear it, but they out earn whites. And East Asians do have a Confucian heritage. So in general terms, this is correct, more or less, and so people won't get too angry with you if you say something like this. But what about the other side of the coin, the negative? If we talk about groups that are underrepresented in higher education, well, then things start to sound pretty awful. To use blunt racist language blacks and Hispanics less value for education so they earn less so hey tough luck get with the Confucian program you know I have to say I sometimes hear people talking this way not quite so bluntly but uh, basically that line and so this leads us to ask what is the Confucian perspective anyway uh, are we saying that some groups are nicer that they're kinder, they're more benevolent, and that's why they earn more? And which groups are we talking about? Which groups are benevolent? And how would you measure a thing like that? Whoa, I mean, come on, who wants to go there? Uh, But is that where we inevitably end up if we're talking about these kinds of things? It would certainly be a sick and twisted version of Confucianism that attempted to explain George Floyd's murder on the basis of group dominance as a result of somebody's superior ritual forms. That would just be horribly wrong. But Confucian writings the Manchists, the Shunza, the Analects, uh, all of them, pretty much, uh, compare different Chinese kingdoms, and the central interest was in the preparation of kings and, and their ministers who could guide the masses into becoming a kingdom or a state that would come out on top or at least not face overthrow and decline. So... A group of people who value butt-kicking over scholarship have, in this view, not been led by a benevolent and enlightened leader. And that's the Confucian view. There are complications that come in when you're looking at modern democratic societies, and we'll talk about that at some point, but yeah, that's the Confucian view. Good government leads societies in the right direction. This was Lee Kuan Yeo's line, the Prime Minister of Singapore, Lee Kuan Yew, We should call him a dictator, really. Uh, you know, Say what you will about this guy, uh, but he did transform Singapore from sleepy backwater to highly advanced nation in just a few decades. Uh, he had a little help from the introduction of uh, air conditioning, it's widely reported, but Uh, you know, he, he really did transform the nation and spouting Confucianism the whole way. And Confucianism does have applications even in the context of the United States. Floyd's murder is symptomatic of a failure to incorporate everyone into the citizenry. And it involves the kind of abuse of power that the Ruists were always going on about. Now, the Ruists didn't have to deal with racism. They didn't even have a concept of race, really. Uh, But it seems obvious that systemic racism is, in a very literal sense, the exact opposite of ritual propriety. The Confucian ideal is for people to cooperate and fit themselves willingly and harmoniously into a system led by virtuous leaders. Virtuous so that their leadership is felt to be legitimate. What you do not want is a social system that's based on physical prowess, or who has the most money, or who has the prettiest face, or the best abs, uh, or which group has a powerful majority. Those are barbaric power systems. So we might say that the Ruists believed that the meek would inherit the earth, except that for them this was not a prophecy, it was a political principle that was always coming true. Yet, there really is a problem here. They seem to be making the mistake of believing that the behavior of successful groups is what caused their success. And you don't have to be a Marxist to see that they often underestimate the impact of power on behavior. It's not just that behavior leads to power. Power changes behavior, and they seem to miss that point part of it. So suffice it to say that the Confucian school did not fully appreciate how economic conditions predicate behavior. So Confucius sometimes end, ended up blaming the victim. Another problem is ethnocentrism which creeps in here and there. Uh, Confucian scholars believed that they had worked out the basic, unchanging fundamentals of human behavior, but some of these fundamentals were really more Chinese than universally human. So some Confucian behavioral proscriptions do actually achieve a kind of universality. Uh, they weren't just ethnocentric So there's some really interesting things to look at, but um, there's uh, some ethnocentrism that comes up now and then. We'll have to wait uh, for that to talk about that in our next episode when I begin to really dig into ritual. (music) Next time, I'll begin with how you give a gift, should you use one hand or two? And it turns out that there are some really interesting things about that subtle difference and we'll get to that. This time, I just wanted to talk about power, the good and the bad. The best and the worst of the Confucian orientation to power. It's wonderful in a way because it gets at micro and too often overlooked processes that generate power at the level of individuals, of groups, and even at the level of states. But it's horrible because there was a tendency to treat the behavior of successful groups and people as being like uh, behavioral best practices when in fact this can be deeply unfair. So that's it for this time. Please feel encouraged to email me at confucianpodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's all one word, confucianpodcast at gmail.com. Please help us out by liking the podcast, following and recommending it to others. Thanks to Oku for our theme music. You can check him out at okumusic.com or hear his music on Spotify, Apple, and other platforms where he goes by the name of Nathaniel Oku, and that's O-K-U. Till next time, express kindness, develop your mind, avoid all depravity, and serve the common good. I'm Andy Abel. Thank you for listening.